Okay, hello everyone. This is uh, Dana Button here, uh, and we're with the EMIG Cast podcast. And uh, just want to introduce myself real quick. I'm a second year medical student. I'm here with a couple others who are introduce themselves in just a second. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And uh, yeah, today we'll be talking about sexual assault and all the different things around it and how we can be better medical providers. Hi, my name is Megan Van de Watering. I am also a second year medical student going to school with Dana at OHSU. And I am a student advocate for students in medical school that experience gender violence and someone who is very interested in helping patients who experience sexual trauma. And today we're joined by Nicole Broder. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name's Nicole Broder. I'm a sexual assault nurse examiner in the Portland and Vancouver area and the SANE program coordinator um, for Oregon through the Oregon Sexual Assault Task Force. And my pronouns are she or they. And my pronoun is she, hers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> We're excited to dive into this topic. It doesn't sound like it's ever been discussed on the podcast. So, Well, I love that you guys are creating an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> I obviously love talking about this stuff. It's an area I'm very passionate about. <laughs> Wonderful. So we would like to ask you about the history of St. Nurses and how it came about um, to your knowledge and how has it changed since you've started to provide care? Sure. Well, SANE nursing is the newest nursing specialty out there. It was only mm -hmm. recognized by the American Nurses Association in, I believe, 1999. So we're talking about 20 years old or wow. so. Um, and it came about because when sexual assault patients were coming into the hospital, um, untrained nurses or sometimes doctors were being asked to collect evidentiary kits on them and provide care. And there's just a lot of detail, a lot of knowledge that goes into that, which we'll talk more about during this podcast. Yeah. Um, and it really wasn't in the patient's best interest necessarily and not in those providers' best interests either because, um, you know, licensure, we like to do things that we're competent in and, and knowledgeable about. Mm. And so some nurses, um, I wish I knew where exactly, kind of took it upon themselves to get more specialized training um, and really turn this into a focus, turn it into a specialty. Um, so in Oregon, our first state certified SANE um, was, I believe, in 2003. So again, very new, you know, wow. like 16 years of like an official program. Um, and we run in-person in trainings through the task force. And that's also been running since about 2002 or so. That's amazing. It's yeah. I know it's it's pretty great. And then it's it's under an umbrella of the wider field of forensics, which mm. in some areas can include um, intimate partner violence, human trafficking, elder abuse, child abuse, uh, motor vehicle collisions. Um, so currently we're kind of in a push to expand from sane into an overall forensics in the state. Yeah. So pretty interesting stuff. Definitely. What got you into being a SANE nurse or why oh. did you decide to specialize there? Great question. Um, so nursing is actually my second degree. My first degree is in anthropology. Mm -hmm. I went to a little tiny liberal arts school in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, <laughs> called Kenyon <laughs> College. If anyone else has been there, represent. <laughs> um, and I decided to take on a volunteer position as um, basically a campus advocate for sexual assault mm -hmm. and met my first SANE nurse through that role um, as a sophomore, like uh, early on in my sophomore year, and really just felt passionate about the volunteer work. Um, thought, hey, I, maybe I should become a saint that would um, really help me stay in this career. Uh, realized that nursing school would be at least another two years of education. Again, I was a sophomore with an anthropology major <laughs> yeah. and thought, no, that's too much school. Um, and then when, I mean, you know, there's all doctors listening to this, <laughs> so they're probably like, you know, two years. Um, <laughs> no, it's a lot. <laughs> but then as a senior uh, in college, was still really interested in it. And so, um, yeah, started the path to nursing school and kind of jumped into this as soon as I was qualified to. Awesome. Love it. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, can you talk about a bit the training that SANE nurses get? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing I do want to mention really quickly is that we tend to refer to these practitioners as SANE's sexual assault nurse examiners, but it's not um, limited to just people with a nursing background. Um, and so folks, I've, I've had folks come through training with PA backgrounds, NP backgrounds, MD, ND, DO, um, mm -hmm. and we accept them too. But just for the sake of clarification, I'll, I'll stick with uh, the, the terminology 
Ecclesiology of SANE. So we ask people to have at least uh, two years of licensure in whatever licensure they're coming from. That's to create a solid foundation um, before we start adding on this forensics piece, this mm -hmm. trauma piece, just make sure that they're really comfortable in that base role. Um, once they've had those two years and their license is unencumbered, they can take a 40-hour classroom training. There are in-person options through the task force and some other organizations. There are online options, um, but the classroom training covers things like neurobiology of trauma, sexual assault dynamics, um, genital anatomy and physiology, um, genital injury, non-genital injury, documentation, discharge and follow-up, STI recommendations, a whole host of things. Mm. Um, and then once they've taken that classroom training, we ask people to do both clinical and non-clinical follow-up training. So clinical training is becoming proficient in speculum exams, which mm. most nurses are not trained in regularly. We obviously want them to be really comfortable in that before they're going to be doing that on someone right after a really traumatic assault. Right? And that's difficult. We just learned that this week, actually, uh -huh. how to do a speculum exam. The cervix hides. Yes. <laughs> Some of them, it's, it's like, yeah, you know, it's three steps in, take a left, pull a UE. Right. <laughs> and yeah, you don't want to be like doing that really uncomfortably with someone who's yeah. just been through an assault, of, of course. Of course. Um, and then, of course, getting trained up in the actual medical forensic sexual assault exam itself too. So we have them do that with a more experienced SANE and kind of build up um, their independence. And then in addition to that, we ask people to do um, non-clinical requirements as well. Mm -hmm. So meeting with kind of multidisciplinary team members like law enforcement, advocacy, prosecution, crime lab, um, if yeah. I'm forgetting anything in there, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and that's kind of two purposes. One, so that folks understand more about our piece in this larger process and what that larger process looks like, um, and also so that they have community contacts, so that if there are perhaps you know, inefficient processes or um, ineffective processes, or if there's a personnel problem, mm. um, that they have people that they can reach out to, ask questions, brainstorm, and really just prioritize this patient's care. Wow. So you guys come in with this extremely extensive knowledge about the context of sexual assault and why it happens and then the steps afterward. Yeah, quite a lot. We, we go pretty in depth. It's <laughs> wonderful. It's a good resource to know as a physician. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, through the task force, I run a technical assistance line that's available to mm. SANES 24-7. And lately, I've been having a lot more doctors call that line also, yeah. going, you know, I have a patient here. What do I do? Should I call the SANE right now? Mm. What should I check first? And it's been really gratifying to see that knowledge getting out there um, and just seeing people so dedicated to serving this patient population. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's great. I've, Really rewarding. <laughs> I guess along that line, Dana, you wanted to explore sort of the steps right. of like what happens when someone presents to a clinic or mm -hmm. to the emergency department right. um, with having just experienced sexual assault or in the last 120 hours, right? There's, yeah, 120 really hours hour. for evidence collection, um, although they can come in after that without getting evidence collected too. Right, of course. Yeah. So there are lots of different ways that patients present. Um, sometimes patients come to the hospital on their own. Mm -hmm. um, they may come with the express purpose of seeking out a medical forensic exam. They may come just because they're worried about something like pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections right. or an, in, an injury, something like that. Um, they may come in because they reached out to advocacy services and the advocate um, talked with them about their options and brought them in for a checkup if that's something that the patient expressed an interest in. Mm -hmm. Or they may have reached out to law enforcement and then law enforcement may have told them, you know, have you considered getting this exam? It would be good from an evidence standpoint um, and good to just get checked out in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so they may have come in through that route. Um, and so that will kind of affect what the process looks like in general. Um, but kind of a typical, for lack of a better word, um, exam often comes when a patient uh, arrives at the um, emergency department. Mm -hmm. um, typically, you know, they'll go through triage. Um, we recommend that triage be pretty uh, 
basic and just to make sure that the patient is stable and not getting into a lot of details yet. And then that the provider have some sort of eyes on them um, for what we call medical screening exam to make sure that Mm. the patient is stable, no immediate medical needs. If there are immediate medical needs, taking care of those before getting um, the sexual assault medical forensic exam underway because medical care always comes above forensic. So that's sort of the role of the physician in that regard so that you hear someone or they share with you that they've experienced sexual assault and then you as the physician are able to step in and address their immediate concerns. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, questioning or gaining history and what because when um, I originally learned about this I was a little bit surprised that um, we don't ask about the details of their assault. We just focus on what's absolutely pertinent to their care. Can you kind of explore that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I I know that many physicians don't have specialized knowledge in this area, so I tend to see Mm -hmm. kind of one extreme or the other. Sometimes, this doesn't quite go to what you're asking about, but sometimes I see physicians go on like a totally hands-off thing until Mm -hmm. the SANE has come in. They're worried about um, contaminating evidence, they're sure. worried about maybe involving themselves in a process um, to a, an unnecessarily unnecessary level of depth. Yeah. Um, and so I always really emphasize, like, you know, you want to make sure the patient's stable, and if they do have those needs, it's it's okay to lose some evidence to make sure that that patient is in a, in sure. a healthy spot. Um, and then on the other side, which is more directly related to what you're asking, is I do see some um, physicians get a whole bunch of details as they're um, getting the history. And it comes from a really good place of they want to, you know, know the details of the assault so that they know that they're providing all the medical care necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I recommend is somewhere in the middle, which yeah. is ask the questions, do the assessments that are necessary to make sure that the patient is stable, make sure that the patient is comfortable, make sure that the patient is safe in that moment, and then kind of step back and um, let the the more specialized folks take over, let the same take over, let the advocate take over, and then jump back in at the end of the exam. Mm. Reason being is that it's really hard for a lot of these patients to share this experience over and over again. Of course. That happens so often. So often, Mm -hmm. yeah. And they're gonna be sharing this experience with the SANE if they see one. Um, We as SANEs ask really, really personal questions. Um, Because you are the ones that collect the information evidence and right. are able to testify and right. to do so. And so yeah. those details are going to be really relevant, exactly. Right. And then they're probably going to be sharing that experience with an advocate um, if one is available. Um, if they report to police, they're going to be sharing their experience there. Yeah. Um, and so the process of repeating this over and over again can be really traumatizing for the patient and ultimately doesn't often provide information that the provider actually needs to know in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then what that does is if the provider is getting all this information and charting it, it also means that you know that physician is more likely to end up um, being called to testify if this case goes to trial. Um, and we as SANES are trained in testimony. We right. are trained in like really defensible, accurate documentation around these assaults. We're trained in, in neutral language and all these things that, again, can be really specialized. And mm-hmm. so... Um, I just would hate to put a physician in that position without having that background and experience because the way that things may be charted may end up opening them up to some questioning that, you know, could have been avoided. Right. So to explore that a little bit more, um, say that a patient, a survivor is willing to share their story. How would you recommend a physician chart that the best to help protect legally and also to have the most neutral and you know most appropriate language in the chart? That's a great question. If the patient is kind of voluntarily sharing their experience, what I would recommend first is that if there's a comfortable place for the physician to bring up the fact that a SANE is being called mm-hmm. and will be asking them a lot of questions, and just so that if they continue to share stuff, they're doing so with the informed consent mm. around um, the fact that they're going to be going through this again. Um, and then I would say that the physicians should focus on just retaining whatever details are really relevant in that moment um, and making sure that whatever is charted is done so like with a utmost um, dedication to accuracy. Mm. So 
you know, if there are things that need to be put in quotations because they're direct quotes from the patient, um, you know, if not sanitizing language, but really capturing what the patient said and how they said it, um, and then not putting quotations around things that, you know, are paraphrased, um, really trying to stay away from any language that could be seen as biased, like um, mm. saying that the patient refused to share more details makes it sound like they should have shared more details. Right. Or saying that the patient declined to share more details kind of makes that point more that it's really up to the patient and they chose the option to, to not share. Of course. Um, and so that, that would be my recommendation there. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Can you also um, talk about language in general? What are some of the things that physicians can do to empower patients who come to them and are put in this vulnerable position of sharing? Um, for example, I didn't know before talking with you that um, patients should be referred to as patients, even mm -hmm. though they are they have undergone sexual assault, and it's terrible, and oftentimes we attribute survivor or victim. Um, can mm -hmm. you describe the differences between the use of victim, survivor, and patient? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch of terms all get used kind of uh, by, by different roles within this. Right. Um, as a SANE, um, I always use the term patient because that's the context in which I'm seeing them. Yeah. And that's what I recommend that other medical professionals use as well. Mm -hmm. Other terms that I either hear or may sometimes use myself in particular contexts is that the patient is the victim of a crime and by being a victim of a crime, they are entitled to legal rights. So that is a legally powerful term. Um, it can also be a charged term because a lot of patients um, react really negatively to hearing that word. It right. makes it sound like, you know, it can sound demeaning um, and it can sort of put on this burden that they don't identify with. And so if I do use that term, um, like if I'm talking about uh, crime victims compensation and talking to them about um, options that are available to them due to that status as a victim of a crime, mm -hmm. I will just like really frankly explain just what I explain right now, which is that I'm using this in a legal sense and it has no bearing on how you've experienced this assault or you as a person. Um, but because it does have that charged meaning, while it's used a lot in a legal context, advocacy and other folks like that, social workers, um, will very carefully stay away from that term. Mm -hmm. And they often choose more empowering terms like survivor or client sometimes as like a neutral thing. Mm -hmm. That can also be charged though, because yeah. I've also seen patients go like, I don't feel like a survivor right now. I wanna be recognized in the fact that I was victimized by someone. Yeah. And so really the most important thing with language is trying to make sure you're staying within your role, but also using language that the patient um, is on the same page on and yeah. respecting the way that they self-identify and what's important to them. Mm -hmm. The other note on language that I think is important for medical professionals to know is that sometimes I, I hear medical professionals refer to the sexual assault as an alleged sexual assault. Mm. And there are some electronic charting systems where it just auto-populates that, which you know unfortunately can't really be easily gotten around. Yes. <laughs> but I would That's say, <laughs> right, exactly. Oh my God, <laughs> no kidding, like a series of podcasts. <laughs> um, but I would say if there is an option to not use the word alleged, it's never something that we as medical professionals should be using because it is, again, a legal term. Mm. Um, and especially when I see charting, for example, that may say that the patient comes in after an alleged sexual assault, my response is always, I've never seen a patient with alleged chest pain. They just come in with right. chest pain and we treat that. So this patient came in after a sexual assault and we're treating them for that, yes. um, which tends to get the point across to, to people and make them go, oh, I never thought about that. I love that. I absolutely love but, that. But, you know, if any of you ever see alleged chest pain show up on a chart, feel free to reach out and tell me that, <laughs> you know, I'm wrong. This is shown up now. <laughs> We're all new to charting and things, but yes. Uh, so delightful. Yes. But it is so important to have the language to really empower your patients through your charting mm -hmm. and to understand what's within your role and what's not. Mm -hmm. To switch gears a little bit, can you speak a little bit about epidemiology? Um, of sexual assault, maybe nationally 
Oregon, locally, Portland? Perhaps, oh, you know? yeah, that's a great question. It's one that I am always a little hesitant in answering just because I know that statistics, statistics I don't know why that word's difficult for me right now, <laughs> um, can range so widely. And yeah. so there's mm-hmm. none that I really hang my hat on. Um, but some of the common statistics that I hear is that nationally, approximately one in four women um, are assaulted. Um, and one in six men is sometimes what I hear, but I've also mm. heard like one in 22 men. Um, I think it's definitely more common than one in 22. Yeah. Um, and in Oregon, I've heard that at least for females that the number is uh, one in four. But then I also have read studies that say that one in four women are assaulted just during the college years, um, mm. which then anything less than one in four doesn't really make sense for the rest of the population. And there's very little information um, on uh, assaults against transgender, non-binary, or Mm. other um, identities, except that we know that assault rates are just generally higher for anyone in a minority status. So that could be transgender patients, that could be, um, you know, minority racial statuses. We know that um, just a lot of Uh, a lot of those folks see even higher rates of abuse and assault Mm. um what i the reason that like in particular some of the statistics man i really (laughs) just can't do it right now (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i've had a big rural push in my job so that one i'm solid on but i (laughs) that's why i don't talk about the statistics um is that i've seen that um you know, there are so many barriers in place for Mm. female-identified patients to come seek help. We know that there's so much victim blaming, um, so many social stigmas, a lot of self-blame. And then what I've seen is that for anyone who's not uh, female-identified, rather, whether that's like our male patients, transgender, non-binary again, there are even more barriers. Mm-hmm. And so people ask me like, well, how how many men do you see? How many trans folks do you see? And it's like very little, but I know that that is not representative at all right. of the actual population. So. Right. How can we as physicians or as medical students be good advocates for patients or create clinical like scenarios or discussions where these things are more open and we can, um, I don't know, not elicit these things from people, but make them comfortable sharing. That's a really good question. If they want to, of course. Right. I think it all just comes down to really building a culture of respect and of um, belief. Um, Mm. You don't necessarily need to believe that assault happened exactly the way that it's described to you to still believe the patient and what they're telling you. For example, um, we know that uh, folks who are assaulted often have vulnerabilities who have been exploited, Mm. um, that they're accessible, that they are easily made to to appear to be lacking credibility, and that those are things that some sexual predators will like look for in victims. And so I have talked with doctors before who are like, you know, so many of the sexual assault patients we get are, you know, mentally ill or have these other issues. And so, you know, they're just making it up. And what I try to gently point out is that, you know, that the fact that they're mentally ill, the fact that we already are in a spot where we believe them less actually makes them even more likely to be assaulted. And if you don't believe them because they keep coming in with assaults, they're they're also at a higher likelihood of being assaulted multiple times. And then it just becomes this cycle of they're already easy to disbelieve because of various social markers. They're also more likely to be assaulted and then this becomes like the self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, one of the things I also point out is that, you know, I've seen patients who have told me stories that are flat out unbelievable, like Russian aliens who are using a laser pointer through a window to implant a heater in their stomach, you know, things that are clearly not true. And what I always remind myself in that moment and encourage other people to remember is that I don't need to believe in the Russian aliens to believe right. that this could be how the patient is retaining a memory of an assault that did happen. Right. Um, and especially if you're talking about mental illness, but even just talking about trauma and what you know memories and bodies do to cope and to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had patients too where you know midway through an exam they go. 
you know what, I have actually lied to you about part of this and I want to come clean now. And it's something yeah. that usually they're very ashamed about. A male patient being right. assaulted by another male, for example. It took hours for him to admit that it was a male assailant, not yeah. a female one. He had lied to uh, EMS, he had lied to the triage nurse, he'd lied to us, he'd lied to the doctor, yeah. all because of that deep-rooted shame. And if we respond to that again with disbelief, all we do is deepen that shame right. and really just increase those barriers that are there. Exactly. It's like the fact that people have a story or don't share all of it or share a different version of it or have a different way of processing what happened to them doesn't mean that they're not deserving of the kind of care that will get them to a better place emotionally, physically, and don't deserve justice yeah. in the systems that exist. Absolutely. One, a common phrase that I use with patients is like, what can you tell me right now? Right. And that kind of takes the pressure off of, I need to have every detail down exactly mm. right, because that pressure just, it leads in the opposite direction. It's, it's non-productive. Yeah. Um, one of the best law enforcement interactions I ever had was that I had a patient who had mental illness and again had an account of the assault that could not have happened the way he said it happened. Mm -hmm. Again, not saying that he wasn't assaulted. When the police officer showed up because he did want to report, um, I he had given me permission to let the police officer know just a brief overview of the assault. And I was kind of nervous to do so because I was mm -hmm. worried that it meant that the officer was going to come in with this attitude of like, well, this guy's crazy. Let's just get this done as quickly as possible. Yeah. But I shared what the patient had told me and I was so impressed and just so grateful. <clears throat> this officer looks at me and goes, huh, that's a hell of a story. But you know, doesn't mean that something didn't happen. And he went in and talked with the patient, really made the patient, I know, Yay. right? Like, yes, yes absolutely, applause. <laughs> really made the patient feel heard and believed. And when that officer left, the patient told me afterwards what a good experience that had been. Mm. And it's like, even if the assault didn't happen at all, yeah. how good is it that that mental healing took place for that yes. patient? Like, that's worth it to me. Yeah. And that's why this is so wonderful and fulfilling for me just as a medical student learning about this and making a podcast about this and disseminating this information. We have such a huge role in the healing process right mm -hmm. after this happens. The fact that we will believe them, that we'll advocate for them, that we'll get them the resources they need, this is just something that can make a world of difference for someone who's experienced something awful. Absolutely. It's, I find it so rewarding. It's very much what propels me forward in this work, for sure. <sighs> You're in good company. <laughs> I know, I love this, it's great. So, um, speaking of that, um, what are the sorts of things that medical providers can do as far as treatment goes when someone does present? Like, what are the actual things that we could put into a computer and order? Mm -hmm. Or what are the things, medications that we could give? Um, maybe just the most common ones that you see. Yeah, so most commonly, people are really concerned about pregnancy and they're really concerned about sexually transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. And so if they're within a five-day window, um, they can absolutely get all those. And sometimes I've seen folks give it up to a seven-day window. Um, mm. You all are the ones prescribing the meds, so I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> Although, you know, the same should always be making recommendations and, and letting right. the physician know if there have been, for example, recent updates to the CDC recommendations. But typically, um, we say, you know, you just pro, uh, empirically give prophylactic medications mm -hmm. because, of course, if testing is done five days after an assault, an STI isn't going to be showing up yet. A pregnancy isn't going to be showing up yet. Right. So you might as well just empirically treat and just make sure, you know, it's just a one-time dose. They can get it done at the hospital and then it's kind of taken care of. Mm -hmm. So we recommend that pregnancy be covered, um, that chlamydia, um, gonorrhea, bacterial vaginosis, and trichomoniasis get covered. Mm -hmm. And so that typically ends up being a regimen of um, one gram of azithromycin PO, 250 milligrams of uh, ceftriaxone IM, mm -hmm. flagell two grams PO. If the patient has not had alcohol in the past 24 hours, we mm -hmm. definitely don't want that ant abuse uh, effect. Yeah. So prescription otherwise, and then plan B or Ella. Um, and then I always say, please also order um, an antiemetic on top of that. So, right. so Fran is typically enough, you know, just for your four milligrams of lingual. Um, and then with, with like the Rocephin shot, uh, mixing it with lidocaine just to make it as comfortable for the patient as possible. Mm. Yeah. That's um, what I see most often. Um, but then, of course, listening to anything else that the, the patient has a concern about and following that. Um, one 
unfortunately very common one that I hear about is strangulation. Yes, I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. That was something else I had no idea that, and it presents with no symptoms or yeah. no clinical features. So yeah, talk about the importance of this and what imagings we can order on the computer. Yeah, and... gladly. Yeah. Um, so strangulation, first of all, I think it's just really important to recognize that strangulation is not really taken seriously in the public at large. Right. Um, and this likely means our patients as well. And I see even within um, the community of medical professionals, even with the, within the community of emergency medical professionals, mm-hmm. it's also not really given the weight that it deserves all the time. Um, And so, you know, we see like the choking game out there and stuff and people are like, well, it's dangerous, but um, I'm like, it's dangerous. You know, it's like a different level of panic there. Um, And so I guess where I want to start is that um, I never ask a patient, have you been strangled? Because people have such a limited definition of that and they, again, don't really take it seriously. I don't feel that I get an accurate assessment that way. and often they describe it as choking, which we know is actually an internal obstruction versus strangulation being exactly. an external obstruction. Um, and so this is again where I might use quotes in my documentation to yes. show like this is what the patient's referring to it as and here's the description of those events. Mm-hmm. So what I ask them is at any time during the, during the assault, was it difficult for you to breathe? Mm-hmm. So I want to start from there, and it may be that they had a hard time breathing because of anxiety or something like that. Sure. I can suss that out later. I'd rather start large, cast a wide net. Um, and I may also ask more specifically, at any time was something placed over your mouth, over mm. your neck, over your chest, or over your back? Because yeah. I feel like chest and back pressure strangulation is mm. the most commonly missed because it just is not what anyone's thinking of when mm. they think of strangulation. Mm. And yet it can absolutely obstruct the airway, absolutely obstruct the blood vessels, and cause all those same problems. What are the problems that we're concerned for? What are some of the sequelae of strangulation that we can see and that we can miss? Yeah, um, a whole bunch of things. Uh, some of the main ones I would like to point out is um, tissue inflammation that could obstruct the airway Um, that can be really delayed too Um, Mm. I've heard a really distressing 911 call from someone who had been strangled ended up having difficulty breathing I think a day later maybe two days later called 911 and the 911 operator actually um, just assumed that she had asthma and kept encouraging her to take her inhaler and this woman did not have asthma and in fact died either on the call or, or right after Horrible. Yeah, it's it's absolutely just very distressing. Um, and so recognizing that these um, symptoms can come up later um, and preparing the patient for that and giving them a very low threshold to come back if, if they're having difficulty breathing, if they're having difficulty swallowing, right. if there have been, you know, voice changes, really taking that seriously. Mm. Another thing that can happen is that from uh, pressure on the blood vessels, there can be a carotid dissection, yeah. which I feel like I typically typically hear about in the context of like chiropractic's gone gone wrong (laughs) Um, but but can absolutely be something from um uh, from strangulation um Mm. and you can stroke out and um all of all of those horrible um consequences that can follow so I'm, i'm always checking on that difficulty breathing difficulty swallowing um changes to the voice what i do not often find even in some very severe strangulation is physical symptoms like the neck is usually not Mm. sore Mm. there's very rarely bruising which means that when i do find bruising i'm like really like oh my god we gotta you know get some stuff going right now um and that's because the neck just doesn't have a lot of bones to it and we see you know bruises most often appear when there's pressure over a bone to break those blood vessels so if someone can be strangled very hard and leave absolutely no signs no petechiae mm-hmm. um which you know will only appear if uh um i think it's if venous if there's venous pressure applied because of its carotid pressure then at the moment i'm forgetting if that's going the right way but yeah. basically it's either venous or, or um 
or arterial is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there may not be um, those petechiae that we would often look for. Right. Um, but again, if I'm finding them, then I'm like, okay, That's this a is big... a very definite sign of that pressure building up. So what do up. we do if we see someone who's coming in and they describe not being able to breathe or that their voice has changed or that they're having a difficult swallowing the water you give them? Mm-hmm. What can you, uh, what can we do? Um, really thorough assessment, um, thorough assessment in the room, um, often a CT angio of the head and neck mm-hmm. um, would be a really good idea. Just really make sure that you can see what's going on there. Yeah. Um, continuing to follow up with the patient and make sure that it's not getting worse. Um, those are kind of a lot of the main things. There's not a specific protocol right now because sometimes imaging does also miss signs of strangulation, right. but I always tell people probably erring on the side of imaging. I know the radiation, obviously, to that area is a risk that needs to be considered. Sure. Um, but the strangulation itself is just so, can be so, so severe. Right. Um, and then the other thing um, regarding strangulation that I want to mention that I thought of really quick is that if it's in the context of domestic violence, then it's something that I think it's, it's important for providers to be aware that if someone has been strangled as part of a domestic violence situation, they're over seven times more likely to be killed by their assailant. Um, And that's just so scary because strangulation is literally taking someone else's life in your hands and showing them that you have their life in, in your hands. And so taking that risk factor seriously in terms of safety planning, in terms of discharge planning, in terms of resources and um, follow-up, I think is just really important to note. Wonderful. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's something that as trainees we're going to take into our practice, and hopefully the listeners of this podcast will take too. Which is great. Spreading out the knowledge from within is really the best way to get that across. (laughs) So... Briefly, um, can we talk about the follow-up that we need to have with patients? Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of a segue from strangulation. Um, How should we follow up and what can we expect our patients to go through, um, through the legal system or through whatever sources of justice they seek out? Sure. So I'll start with like right after a SANE completes their exam. Typically um, at that point, the SANE will make contact with the physician and let them know, you know, any major findings from the exam, anything that needs to be followed up on. Typically the SANE will have talked with the patient about um, medications and prophylaxis that they're interested in, if they're maybe interested in HIV prophylaxis, um, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Um, And if there's, you know, something that maybe need to be followed up on but wasn't urgent enough to bring the physician in at the time of the exam, like this patient was held down by their wrist and it's really hurting and is that something that we need to x-ray? And so having the physician come in and just kind of do a last double check with the patient about um, any medications or imaging that's going to be ordered, um, put eyes on anything that needs to be eyes on um, is really good to do. Um, And then from there, Typically, the SANE will include follow-up recommendations in our discharge instructions, and the the physician can absolutely be a part of that too. So typically, what we'll say is that following up with a provider in a couple of weeks to get STIs rechecked and pregnancy rechecked is a good Mm. idea. Um, We don't want people counting on this stuff 100% and then maybe ending up with a much harder situation down the line. We also give them information for advocacy um, and advocates can be uh, community-based where they have a really high level of confidentiality called privilege. That can mm-hmm. be a really good resource to give to the patients so that they know they have someone they can talk to completely unfettered. You know, it's not a friend or family member that maybe they might be hesitant to share some details with knowing that that would be hard for loved ones to hear. Um, And it's not someone who's going to run to the legal system and share stuff, um, Mm -hmm. but someone who just can be there completely just for them. Um, And and one thing I want to mention jumping back real quick is that in terms of medical follow-up, I often give, I ask who the patient sees normally if they have a primary care provider or clinic, and then mm-hmm. I let them know you can go there, or if you want to see someone who you're not already connected with, mm-hmm. here's a list of county health departments and other clinics in case yeah. you want to go see them. I think that option for a little bit extra privacy or not feeling like this is something that your primary care doctor is going to 
know a whole ton about or something if that's someone that you see often and just want to be able to have that be separate um i see a lot of patients want areas of their life to be separate from the assault and so i try to give them resources where i where i can that's so thoughtful thank you yeah (laughs) we try try to be trauma-informed um and then if I have other resources to give them, um, Talk about know. financial resources, yeah, the safe fund specifically. Yes, I absolutely. So, if a patient has been insult- assaulted in Oregon or in another country, mm. something called the Save Fund, the Sexual Assault Victims Emergency Fund, is run through Oregon Department of Justice's Crime Victim Services Division, and. If a patient shows up for a medical forensic exam within seven days, 168 hours of the assault, Mm -hmm. um, all services that are related to the sexual assault that are provided at the time of one visit can be covered. And so what that means is that, you know, the SANES exam and time is going to be covered. Um, Evidence collection is covered if it's within 120 hours or five days. Mm. Um, Preventative medications are going to be covered. Pain meds are going to be covered. Anxiety meds are going to be covered. Um, Imaging, blood tests, all of that, if it's related to the sexual assault and if it's done at this one exam, that's all going to be covered. What's not covered is um, anything not related to the assault. Mm -hmm. So if the patient has a random other complaint that they just want the doctor to go ahead and check out at the same time, that won't be covered. Um, Anything after the exam, like follow-up tests, um, or I should say after the visit. So follow-up tests um, won't be covered. Uh, Prescriptions won't be covered. Um, And then that is available regardless of insurance status, regardless of reporting status. So it doesn't matter. The patient can be insured, uninsured. They can be reporting to the police or not. Um, all of that, it's still going to be covered by the SAFE Fund. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't prevent them from seeking out additional financial aids like crime victim services um, or crime yeah. victims compensation, um, any which, of that. Which they may need to do because the HIV prophylaxis medications are only half covered by the SAFE Fund, right? So yes. they may need to seek out other financial resources right and then the prescription for the HIV meds because it's a 28-day course like that prescription isn't covered at all so Mm. it's yeah 50% of um, the HIV meds given at the time of the visit and then none of what follows unfortunately yeah and then if a patient's assaulted in another state um, each state has kind of a version of this fund with different restrictions and different specifics um, Mm -hmm. but they can use that patient or that state's fund in order to to help with the financial cost there that is so good to know. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really helpful. And it, it, you know, the services didn't used to be quite this expansive. Um, and, and just this past year, they were able to open up that up more. And yeah. kind of our next push is maybe seeing if HIV can be covered. So right. it's really nice to just see this cover more and more for the patients. One thing I forgot to mention that the mm. SAVE Fund also covers, and this is the one thing that's like after the um, initial visit, is that um, it covers five free counseling sessions. And that can be with any licensed counselor of the patient's choice. It can be someone they're already seeing. It can be someone they seek out, someone available through their work or through, you know, school. Um, And that's just open. I think they have 18 months after the assault to um, access those five free counseling sessions um, just to help get people back on their feet and start that healing process. To elaborate on that, um, what sort of follow-up do people usually need? or mental health after something like this? It really varies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we um, give folks the advocacy number. I think one of the hard things being a medical professional in this is that we have such an important but such a small time-limited slice of, right. of this whole thing. Yeah. And um, so advocates can follow up with the patient more and see kind of how their needs are maybe changing day to day and they have a lot of connections to resources. Some patients I know are in touch with their advocacy centers or a social worker or someone else very regularly, you know, multiple times a week. Some mm-hmm. advocacy agencies have um, like group sessions, group support, um, and some patients find that really, really beneficial. For other folks, it's like, no, that would be re-traumatizing. And so, you know, very much supporting them in whatever they choose there. Some people are really open with their friends and family and feel like they have good supports there and never feel the need to reach out to anyone else. 
Um, and some people feel like they can't share it with friends or family at all. So it does vary widely. Um, and one thing that I kind of try to prepare my patients for um, when I get a chance is just the fact that those needs may fluctuate and so that mm. they may feel good for months, you know, feel good maybe being an overstatement, but like solid and like they have all the resources they need. And then I've heard of patients who six months later, a year later, all of a sudden end up in a point where they feel overwhelmed and feel yeah. like they need extra help. Yeah. And so I'm always trying to just leave those resources with them so that they're available to access um, or vice versa. Sometimes people feel a huge need for help initially and then you know, one day may feel like they're in a much better spot or you know, may go back and forth between those two things. So one of the things that I think about with mental health in this sort of situation is the potentially re-traumatizing nature of going through legal proceedings as well. Mm-hmm. Does the timeline of how quickly legal action gets taken and or goes through the court um, actually fall in the same timeline as like these mental health free counseling sessions in the 18 months? That... That's a great question, and it mm-hmm. may or may not. Um, I oh God, I so wish that life were like a Law & Order episode where it all gets wrapped <laughs> up, right? Yeah. And then nice little bow and no complications ever. Yeah. Um, one thing that I want to kind of start with, which maybe, again, isn't directly related, but um, I imagine folks have heard about like the rape kit backlog in yeah. um, all, all over the country. Yeah. Um, something I'm very happy to note is that our crime lab in Oregon was really responsive to this and was able to get some funding to help them revamp processes, get a little bit more um, personnel power, and we our backlog is now done. Like We've taken care of it. Um, and Congrats so I know, right? I, I'm yeah. so like just so grateful to our wonderful forensic scientists who just work so tirelessly on this. Um, for a while, it was like several months of you know turnaround time. And at um, this point, what I've heard is that sometimes initial results um, as quickly as like a month, month and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, for some people still going to feel very long, but definitely compared to like a year or something right. is, is very short. And, you know, obviously these are very delicate cases too, where um, just a lot of attention to detail as well. Right. Um, so yeah, about a month, month and a half turnaround time for some of those initial results. Um, but that's just, you know, the crime lab piece. So that'll be part of the investigation. I can say that when I have been subpoenaed on cases for exams that I've done, Mm -hmm. the quickest I've ever been subpoenaed was about four months later, and that involved a minor, and those tend to move more quickly when it's a minor. but you know, just in the past few months, I got subpoenaed on a case that I did in late 2016. So we're talking about three years later. I feel like I typically get subpoenas about one to two years out. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot going on behind the scenes. It's not like the patient is left out of the process for a year or two. But if you think about the turnaround time from the exam to trial, um, you know, it can be about that length of time. And then when I get a subpoena, I often, the trial ends up being continued for another month, two months, three months. And so we don't actually go to trial until later than even when I'm getting the subpoena. So it is a very lengthy process. And from that mental health standpoint, like you're talking about, it can be really re-traumatizing for patients, Mm. um, which is absolutely not to say that if a patient wants to report and go through the system that they shouldn't. Some patients find a huge amount of satisfaction um, through this process. And I feel like um, law enforcement and DA's offices are getting better all the time about being trauma-informed, making sure that the patient has support, that advocate is allowed to accompany them during some of these things, well, during most of these proceedings, right? to make sure that they're kind of wrapped in with those services. And then um, I feel like they're also getting more trauma-informed about just keeping the patient updated so that they have a chance to maybe pull back or take some time. I've been seeing a lot more respect for that, but it can still just be very difficult. Um, Like I mentioned, a lot of patients just kind of want to move past the assault. Sure. 
or not have it interfere with other parts of their life. And when you have legal proceedings going on for that long, um, and especially if the assailant is someone that they know, a friend, a family member, which is most common, um, or an acquaintance or a coworker or a classmate, um, all of those things then when you think about those tensions and dynamics being pulled out that long can be really tough for people. So it's something, again, where I feel like advocacy is so good at providing ongoing support Mm -hmm. to help them through that process. And then another thing that's really helpful with that is that in Oregon and in many other um, states in the U.S., we have the option for patients to have an anonymous or non-reporting kit collected. And Mm. what that means is that as long as they don't hit a mandatory reporting requirement for the medical professional, they can have evidence collected um, and an exam done just as if they were reporting to police but then their name and identifying information is not put on the front of the kit. There's just like a number that the kit itself has and it gets stored by law enforcement anonymously for 60 years, six zero years, so really long time. Um, That's typically gonna cover most of most people's lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, And during that time, the patient can come forward at any time and make a report and have um, the police move forward with testing that kit and investigating. And I find that that is also really helpful because it gives patients the chance to take some time um, to really, you know, start on their own healing, to get affairs in order if they, you know, maybe need to work out some things at work, at school, at home, um, before they dive into this process. And I think it's it's just a huge boon for our patients. Love that. Yeah, me too. A lot of patients take that option. (laughs) And on the topic of mandatory reporting, um, I know that a lot of adults have that chance to decide whether or not they want to report, but um, children and then um, victims of elder abuse don't have that option because Mm -hmm. physicians are required to report. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, because we didn't cover this, when do we call a sane nurse and an advocate to our Mm. clinic room Mm -hmm. um, or to the space where we're taking care of a patient? Mm -hmm. Um, And how can we most value their autonomy and power in that moment? Um, Say, like, there's a child or someone who's a minor, like 17, who starts to disclose something to you and you think it might be sexual assault and you want to maintain their autonomy. Um, Mm -hmm. An advocate can be a person who they can talk to without being subpoenaed. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you kind of explore that? Because that's something that as a student advocate, it's like a huge privilege for me. I'm not a confidential, um, I'm not a mandatory reporter Mm -hmm. of students who come to me to talk about something. Yeah, that was really hard for me to leave behind going from the advocate world to the sane world was yeah. leaving that <laughs> that privilege uh, behind there. Yeah. Um, so, well, to answer your first question, I recommend calling an advocate as soon as you know that you have a patient who's experienced a sexual assault. Right. And what the advocate will do when they arrive is explain who they are to the patient and all the different services that they could provide, which could be staying with them through the hospital visit um, and providing credit crisis intervention and emotional support. Yeah. It could be logistical, like setting up transportation after the exam or um, uh, helping with getting time off school or work. It could be helping with housing. Um, And a lot of patients don't know that that's available. And the vast majority of medical professionals don't know either and so they can't really do justice to explaining it and so for the patient to really be able to make an informed decision to accept or decline the advocate services we really recommend that the advocate be the one to explain that to the patient and then the advocate will always give them the option that you know you can decline this altogether and i'll leave like that's totally fine um so i would say always call an advocate um if you have a patient who you know has been sexually assaulted um, it's legally required that the medical team call an advocate if the patient has been sexually assaulted and is seeking a medical exam. Mm. And so this kind of goes into your question of when to call a SANE. I'd say call a SANE whenever the patient is considering that medical forensic exam. They don't necessarily need to have decided for sure. Right. And it can still be helpful to call us because we can then explain to the patient the different options, um, what it would look like for them. I've had patients who don't decide about the exam until we're kind of already in the middle of it because 
you know, maybe they really don't know an option that I give is, you know, we can start by just talking about what you experience. Mm -hmm. And then if you're comfortable sharing that with me, I can give you a really detailed idea of what your exam would look like with them having the option to accept or decline any step that I provide them. Um, And then that just gives them, again, a more informed um, chance to decide like, okay, so if you're collecting swabs from these areas and you don't necessarily have to look at these areas if I don't want you to and you're going to respect that, okay, I'll go through with it. And so I feel like we get more patients um, agreeing to care that way because they just understand better all their options and the fact that we're just going to respect them. I know, and it builds rapport and all that (laughs) kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, we are always happy to talk through those options with the patient. Yeah. So then in terms of supporting the patient's autonomy, um, I think the first step, well, a step, maybe, maybe not the first, let's not rank them. Um, <laughs> a step is just what I said, is allowing the individual players to explain their roles, right. the advocate to explain their role, the saint to explain their role. Um, I think some people maybe get concerned that by calling in that other player, maybe they're not respecting the patient's autonomy. And if the patient is saying, like, absolutely, I don't want anyone else called to the hospital, then sure, like, don't do it. Um, But I think that really to respect the patient's autonomy, it's also respecting that need for them to have all the relevant information before they commit to a path. Um, And knowing that those players are gonna respect that ultimate decision too, that no one's gonna pressure them down a particular route. Um, That gets a lot tougher with those mandatory reports like we were talking about. So there are some age-related ones, there are other ones around mental illness or um, cognitive delay. Mm -hmm. And something that I always emphasize with my patients Um, when I have to make a mandatory report is that I am legally required to make this report, but that doesn't mean that you have to talk to the officer who who may or may not respond. Mm. It doesn't mean that you have to share any particular information with me. All of that is still within your power, and I'm going to support whatever decisions you make there. Um, And I've I've seen really, really good feedback through that. People, you know, it keeps that rapport. It's really honest. People respond well to that honesty. Right. And I've had people go, okay, um, yeah, I don't think I want to tell you much more detail on this thing right now, and I respect that. And I've also had people go, okay, that's good to know, but you know what? Let's just continue on. And that always impresses me because I, I don't know. It's just it's a it's an awkward position to be in. Um, but the other thing about mandatory reports that I feel like you were starting to touch on is that if I see that a mandatory report um, requirement may be about to be hit, but it hasn't been hit yet, I will try to gently interrupt the patient and let them know my mandatory requirements, mandatory reporting requirements before they disclose that so that if they disclose, they're doing so in an informed way and they don't feel like I've caught them in a corner, for example. and so, for example, you know, uh, injury from um, non-accidental serious injury from a weapon um, or from a, a deadly or dangerous weapon is reportable, just the injury, not the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I've had patients before where, before we got to any talk about a weapon, if I suspect that they that may be coming in, I'll let them know if a dangerous or deadly weapon was involved, like a gun, like a knife, Um, I'm going to have to report this to police. And then at least if they do end up sharing that information, again, I know that they did so willingly, knowingly, and I imagine I have a few people who chose that opportunity to leave out a few details. And again, I don't want anyone to ever feel like I tricked them into a disclosure that then binds them to a specific course. I feel like that's the thing with mandatory reporting. It can feel like people have been tricked and then their autonomy is not respected or it goes down a path that they can't control and that can be re-traumatizing in itself. So giving the patient all the information or the, all the disclosures as we see them coming. Yeah, absolutely. The, the earlier you can get it out, the better. Yeah, and the techniques that you mentioned are awesome. I think Thank that, you. Yeah, <laughs> they've worked, they've been working them. well. And I'm always trying to pick up new ones from other saints, other advocates, other you know physicians and medical professionals. Yeah. Um, I think just that constant, I just like want a library of all the great things yeah. I see people do. <laughs> I'm so glad. Quite a few things to keep in mind as you're going through one of these things. Yeah. 
figuring out the subtle nuances between all these different interactions and definitely the intersections between all these different systems that you're sitting right in the middle of. Oh yeah, right. like the most challenging part of the exam for me remains, and this may sound funny, but that very first moment where I'm introducing myself to the patient. It's not the evidence collection, it's not the critical thinking, it's not the prophylaxis, it is mm-hmm. I have so much information that I want to get to them up front sure. and I need to get them all this information so that they can make an informed decision, know all these different things, and yet I don't want to overwhelm them and that remains the most challenging part of the exam for me. It's just the wow. first moment I step in the room. Where do you even begin? I know, right? right? I have my little spiel, and again, I always like tinker it as I hear other people. I'm like, oh, that's a good way to say that, or oh, I didn't think about the fact that that maybe they don't identify with, you know, having been sexually assaulted. So maybe I won't describe myself as just a sexual assault nurse. Maybe I'll explain more about how I'm trained to work with patients who have been hurt by another person or who have memory right. loss and are wondering if they were hurt by another person and um, and that kind of expands it more. So just like things like that, I'm always adding in and tinkering. Certainly. <laughs> I love that. Well, we're nearing the end of our hour. Um, is there any big takeaways that we should hit on before we move on and say our farewells <laughs> and our thank yous? <laughs> Uh, I think we hit a lot of good points in this. Yeah. You know, I'm just really appreciative that, that you all want to get more of this education out there and um, always love the chance to, to do education, not just with SANES, but with all the other partners that we work with, because that really cohesive, coordinated, multidisciplinary response is so key to patients being on a good path of health and healing. And I think it really just also models the norms that we want to see in the world. And that always makes me feel really good too. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't agree more. And now butterflies and bluebirds are appearing everywhere. (laughs) And the world has been solved. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If we ever get to do a part two, let me know. This is really fun. (laughs) Would love. (laughs) So much to discuss. Well, you've been listening to the Emergency Medicine Interest Group cast podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Yeah. All right. Talk to you all later. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>